chapter 12. Well, chapter, right, we have a little bit to read actually in chapter 11. So Mark chapter 11, if you're scrolling in there, we're going to actually read in verses 27 through chapter 12 to verse 12. This will be our, our text this morning. And so we're going to read God's word this morning and I will pray and we will, we will jump in. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, well, if we say from heaven, he will say, well, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, and they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered him, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug it a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to the tenants and went to another country. And when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And again he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head, and they treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and they killed him. And so many others, some they beat, and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally he went to to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him. The inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. This is God's word. Lord, thank you for your word today. Lord, thank you for the privilege for us to come before your word to hear from you this morning as your people. We are are your people. We are people of the Spirit. This is Spirit-breathed words, and so we can come and hear from you this morning. So speak to our hearts today, Lord. We, We are people under the word, so we come under your word today to submit, to hear, to 
to be changed, to, to be conformed to you. So Lord, we, we come as spirit people to hear from you today by the Spirit. So help us, oh God, help me today to share from your word, preach your word. Amen. Amen. Well, recently I went into Costco with, with a few of my children, and um, I don't know what, why this didn't dawn on one of them before, but they drew attention to the fact that I showed my card as I entered in. There's always that checker there, being sure you have your card. And uh, they're asking, can you get in here without your Costco card? And uh, I said, no, you have to have a Costco card. They were sort of mesmerized by that. I have the power to buy bulk items. Right? <laughs> if you want a 50-gallon jug of Nutella, you can, you can do that. So that's, there's like one level of power. There's like certification that you have, credentials by having that Costco card. But there, there are other levels of credentials. You start getting into sort of like the top secret level clearance sort of thing. One of those examples is the person who carries the, the nuclear football. I don't know if you know what that, that is. It's the, sometimes called the atomic football or just the football, but it's this briefcase that travels along with the president. So when he's away from nuclear command centers, he at any time could open that thing up and whatever pieces have to move for him to authorize a nuclear attack. But inside this briefcase are codes to launch and locations of the nukes. And so that, that is a whole nother level of power and credentials and authority. Well, when we have been moving through Mark, we, we have continued to be encountered by people coming against Jesus or Jesus clarifying uh, his authority. And there still remains this question even among the leaders and as Jesus moves into Jerusalem, the epicenter of worship, the epicenter of what would be for the Jew authority and what shapes God's people, uh, he is being challenged about his credentials, who he is, where he, he is from, and what he is sent to do is increasingly becoming clear as Jesus is now in Jerusalem moving towards his cross. And so we're going to see once again those things, the son of God who, who has authority, and we're going to see more clearly he is the son of God who was sent by the Father. And so we're in Jerusalem. This, this is likely day three now of the week leading up to Passover. And Jesus, as we saw last week, is showing us as he moves in and among the temple, he is, he is changing how worship is going to happen. He is changing how God's people can come in prayer and worship to him. The parable of the fig tree and the judgment against the fruitless leaders and the temple is a sobering warning against those who would come with, with a facade of worship, a call to faithful worship. It was the Lord revealing that through Jesus that all people, all Jews and Gentiles alike, could be able to come and access God and his house will be a house of prayer for all nations. And so the next two chapters are going to continue around this theme of Jesus being confronted by religious leaders and how this relates to the temple. And so Jesus is in the temple again and he, he has three, three representative groups come up to him. We see that chief priests, scribes, and the elders. Now, these three groups were representative of what, what is called the Sanhedrin, and it's this ruling body, particularly a political ruling body that would 
as the Jewish nation would relate to Rome, they would be these, this representative group, the authoritative group. So if anything is going to happen or not happen among Israel and the Jews, it, it comes through these dudes. These are the, this is the top tier of religious authorities and authorities within Israel. You can't get any higher here. And these are the guys that come to Jesus to ask him questions about his authority. Authority by what and how he does these things. Who gives you authority, Jesus, to do these things? Well, what are, what are these things? Well, some of those things were what he just did, flipping tables over and proclaiming prophetic words to, to them and regarding the temple. But also in the background is all that he has been doing. What has he been doing? He, he is claiming he has authority to forgive sins, to he has displayed authority to heal diseases, to raise the dead, to command nature at his beckoning. And so here they challenge his authority. Who gives you authority to do what you're doing? And Jesus doesn't answer the question directly. He asks them a question. He replies with a question. And his question is about his good buddy, John the Baptist. So he asked them, if you, what do you think John the Baptist, his baptism, basically his ministry, who, where was his authorization? Where did his authority come from? Was it sourced in man, meaning did it have human origin, or was it sourced in heaven or from God? I can just kind of imagine these guys sort of huddling over to the side and Jesus maybe just even like sitting down because he just... He's so relaxed and calm. Maybe he's having an off-topic conversation with the disciples about Passover coming up and like looking forward to enjoying the roasted lamb together. I mean, it just really is not problematic to him at all. He's not worried about what they're going to answer him in. And, and yet I could see them fretting, right, like hands being raised and looking over their shoulder. What, what kind of answer are we going to give him? And they're, they're working through this problem, this dilemma. If they say men, that John was from men, his authority came from men, that was a problem because if we see in our text that all believed, all the people believed that John was a prophet, that he had authority from God. And if they denied that, this would be an uproar. They would be like kind of a riot among the people, a discredit to their authority. But if they say from, from God that it was from heaven, they're caught. They're caught because if they embrace that John the Baptist was sent from God, then they must embrace the fact that Jesus was sent from God, and therefore Messiah, and they would have to be his disciple. John was sent as a prophet from God, as the forerunner of Jesus, proclaiming him, testified to Jesus as the Messiah, the one of all, with all authority, and they would have to embrace that themselves. Because Jesus said back in Mark 9, 37, whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. He was the one that was sent from God. So to deal with Jesus is to deal with God. But they, they refuse such a thing. And therefore they embrace their destiny of judgment. So they come to Jesus and they answer, we don't know. But in a sense, they, they do know. Their answer is not one of ignorance. 
Their answer is one of not wanting to submit to Jesus' authority. And he has already, in an indirect way, answered their question, even though he says he's not going to answer. Their lack of conviction and courage to do so exposed their inability to embrace truth. They're blind. They're blind and unwilling to see. James Edward observes, he says, those who cannot be honest with themselves cannot be honest about Jesus. Unwillingness to make a judgment about God's first acts eliminates the possibility of knowing the last act in Jesus. The Sanhedrin opts for a suspended judgment or keeping an open mind, as we say today. But in reality, it shuffles among the options of skepticism, unbelief, and cowardice. If there is faith even as small as a mustard seed, Jesus responds, truly, I tell you. But in the face of calculated unbelief, he responds, neither will I tell you. Jesus is willing to invite those into his kingdom with even mustard seed faith. But they, in Edward's words, were in their calculated unbelief, resist truth. Therefore, they deny Jesus' authority as the Son of God, and they will be blind to the last act in Jesus, his cross, that's ahead. Now, you probably picked up on this, this, this reference to fear through yes, last week's text and maybe today. This prevailing fear in these leaders. If you have your Bibles open, you can look back at eleven eighteen. They feared him, Jesus, because the crowd was amazed at his teaching. Verse 32, and they were afraid or they feared the people for they held John to be a prophet. And then verse 12, 12, they feared the people again. That's a lot of fear going on in these guys. This is a fearful bunch, as strong as they seem to be appearing in themselves. They feared men. They thought men were greater in their eyes than God himself. They were fearful to lose status. They were fearful to lose their power. They were fearful to lose control. They were fearful to lose glory in the eyes of others. We actually see in John's gospel, Jesus is preaching, communicating about his healing, and he is healing, and some people are believing. But then it tells us this in chapter 12, verse 42. Nevertheless, many, even the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. The leaders, the authorities, believed in Jesus to an extent, but they feared being exposed and, and in turn was exposing a deeper love in their heart more than a love for God. They loved glory, praise of men, more than the praise of God. The love of human approval and the fear of rejection of men are really two sides of one coin. And all of our human hearts are are vulnerable to this. But as we examine the fears that control us, it can expose the things that we, we love most. When we just start getting into the deeper thing and say, what am I fearing? There are often the loves that are revealed in that moment. This type of fear is always 
a trap. These guys are trapped. They are trapped because they cannot be truthful with themselves because of this fear. And sometimes we do things when we are bound by this fear that we wouldn't normally do. We become people who we aren't really wanting to be. And in their case, lead someone to choose something over than Jesus, other than Jesus. But here's the beauty and the power of the gospel when it comes to this type of fear. It frees us, saints. It, it frees us from both sides of this coin. The love of human approval and of the fear of rejection. The love of the praise of men and fearing the rejection of men. How does that do that? Well, the gospel, when we consider the cross, we realize the penultimate rejection that you and I deserve, Jesus was rejected for us, instead of us. So the rejection that we deserve, Jesus receives that rejection for us. Therefore, we can experience the rejection of men for Jesus' sake and have peace. We can say, what can man do to me? So our hearts are governed because we are safe in him. We don't have to fear that ultimate rejection. It's already been absolved. And the flip side of that, the love our hearts most long for, the acceptance we most need, is securely, fully, eternally ours in Jesus Christ. So if all other loves fail, humanly, we have his. Jesus is standing by our side. And that's what matters most. The steadfast love that never ceases. So secure in his love, having known that the rejection that we should most fear is already taken care of, we stand safe in his love and his grace. And our hearts in the gospel can then move away from freedom from this type of fear. So one last thought in this little section here. Jesus, Jesus asked the question back to these leaders was, his question was not just merely, I gotcha, right? He was doing something much deeper than that. He was exposing their hearts. He was getting to the truth that was at a deeper level. And in their case, exposing their hard hearts, and their hearts were increasingly hardened. And yeah, I think there's a lesson for us in this, this approach of Jesus asking questions. We, we can grow in asking better questions, we can grow in responding to those who maybe are coming against us by asking questions. It's very easy just to make declarative statements, to make pronouncements about truth. Our sort of Twitter age, it's very easy just to throw out our blanket stances and pronouncements. But we can always grow in being slower and growing in asking questions to approach people's hearts to get to hearts, to understand the hearts of those who we are speaking to, believer or unbeliever. Randy Newman, not the Toy Story guy. <laughs> you got a friend in me. Um, he's an author and is a teacher. He worked in campus ministry for decades, but he's got an excellent book called Questioning Evangelism, where he, he calls Christians to consider in our approach to unbelievers by following this approach of Jesus, asking questions. And he says, to move the conversation in a Christ-word direction, questions that non-Christians are asking either directly or indirectly, and questions that Christians can use to 
provide answers. So his encouragement, and I think wisely as Jesus' example, is that we move towards others by asking questions to uncover truth, not just simply to give an answer to attack or to confront. And I think this is a wise thing that we can all grow in together. And even then, I think just in even a simpler approach is asking questions so that we can know people. Why, why are you asking that question? Help me understand why that's important to you. There's a story behind that. Can you just tell me your story? What's, tell me about yourself. I think that model is helpful. And there is something that happens when it comes to even enemies coming at us in that way that deflates and disarms. So the story moves from the leaders questioning Jesus' authority and him answering by not answering and we get to his divine authority. He is the one sent from heaven. And then Jesus tells us a parable about his authority as the, as the Son of God. And in it, he begins to just build on his direction of being rejected and suffering and what this means to fulfill his divine plan. So he is the Son who, who is sent. So Jesus tells a parable. He starts that in, verse, in chapter 12. And of course, the Sanhedrin guys, they're there. They're here in this parable. He's speaking primarily to them. And remember, we learned about Jesus telling parables back in Mark chapter 4. He tells the parable of the sower, and he explains why and how parables work. He tells parables so that some who are hearing may not understand, and others who are in the kingdom, the secret's unlocked, and they understand, and therefore they follow Jesus, and they bear fruit in his kingdom. So how you respond to the parable shows if you are in or you're out. And so what does he say? Well, he tells a parable, and he uses this common thing that he does, just everyday stuff, seeds and sowing and farming, and he uses a vineyard, and he tells a story of a landowner who builds a vineyard. And the owner moves away, and he gives some tenants responsibility to take care of the vineyard and grow the fruits, these hired hands, this idea of tenant farming was common in this time. The story goes, as time passes, the owner sends servants to get fruit to collect profit. Now, this would likely would have taken a long time. It feels very short in our parable, but it, it's, it's like five plus years that it would take to even get an initial first yield in a vineyard. So the tenants have plenty of time to concoct a plan of their, their own. So this was not a spur-of-the-moment thing for them. So the owner sends a servant. The servant arrives. The first one, they beat him and send him away with nothing. So the owner sends another. They beat him. They shame him. And they send another, and they kill him. Jesus says others are sent, and some are beaten, and some are killed. And then finally, Jesus says the owner had still one other, a beloved son. The owner finally sends. You know that word finally. It's like this is, this is the final resort, the last thing I'm going to do. And he sends his son and he says they will respect him. But what do they do? What do they do? They don't simply beat him. They say, come, let us kill him. The landlord sends his beloved son. And they think, maybe, maybe the, the owner's dead, and this is, this is the heir. And so once he's gone, 
This is, this is all, all ours. So they took him and they killed him and they threw him out of the vineyard. Jesus asked, well, what does the owner do in that? Well, he will destroy the tenants and give his vineyard to others. So what's loaded up in this parable? How can we understand that? Well, there's a, there's a lot going on from the Old Testament that would inform us understanding this parable. Well, first, in the Old Testament, God refers to Israel as his vineyard. This, was a, this would be an understood metaphor by a Jew. We see this in Isaiah chapter 5. Let me sing for my beloved, Isaiah's speaking of God, my love song concerning his vineyard, God's vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. And he built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed it out of wine, a wine vat in it. And, it looked, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. So Israel was a lovely vineyard that God had planted. He had put together, he had established with hopes of it to grow and bear beautiful fruit. And he looked for justice and righteousness and spiritual fruit among his vineyard, and yet it says that it yielded wild grapes. And it goes on to say that it continued to be fruitless, and this was a word of judgment that from Isaiah to what would come. It was found fruitless, and judgment would come to Israel. Consider thinking this flowing from our fig tree that we looked at last week. So we have Israel, the vineyard. Now, how about this identity of the servants? Well, this is a connection to God's prophets. God sent so many others, and some they beat, and some they killed. The prophet Jeremiah spoke of how Israel dealt with God's prophets in chapter 7. From the time your ancestors left Egypt until now, day after day, again and again, I sent you my servants, the prophets, but they did not listen to me or pay attention. They were stiff-necked and did more evil than their ancestors. So in Israel's history, God sent messengers, servants, again and again, over and over. We actually see in Hebrews chapter 10 some of the ways that people dealt with prophets and servants. Some were flogged, some were tortured, some were imprisoned, some were sawn in two, some were killed by the sword. So vineyard, servants, and now we get to the tenants. Who are the tenants? Well, Jesus is calling out the very men in front of him, the religious leaders of Israel. And we know this from verse 12. They actually even clue in. They, they realize Jesus is speaking about them. But here's the indictment to Jesus' parable. In Isaiah, Israel was rebelling, and therefore God lowered his protection, and enemies came in and attacked Israel. So the enemies came in to destroy. Here, God, the owner, sends his servant to his vineyard to find fruitfulness, and the attackers are not from without, but they're right there within the vineyard. They are from his own spiritual leaders, the ones given responsibility to steward his people, and it was disastrous. It was quite the indictment. And as Israel's prophet, Israel did to the prophets before, the leaders are now going to do 
to the servant king, the son. In verse 6 in chapter 12, this is, this is where we kind of clue into our, our climax of our story. The owner sends his son, the beloved son. Now we should clue in here. Now if you were the first hearers of Mark, if someone was giving Mark to you verbally and you were hearing Mark for the first time like possibly these first Christians were, you would have remembered in Mark chapter 1 and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And you would have remembered in Mark chapter 9 at the Mount of Transfiguration, a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came from the, out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Now, if you just pause for a moment, if we were just in this parable, if you were the vineyard owner, and you had sent a servant, and he was beat up and sent back, then you sent up another one, and he was humiliated and beat up and sent back. You sent another one, and he was killed. And you sent many more, and they were beat up, and they were killed. I think I would have hesitancy to then send my son, let alone your beloved son. The owner had legal rights to this property. I mean, he could have lawyered up, and he could have just you know, dealt with this situation with some lawyers and legal team. But what would compel a father to send his son, his only son, knowing that the possibility of harm would come to him, to lay claim and to bring the harvest of his vineyard? There's only one thing. He's the love, the love of a father. The love of God, the love of God Sending a son to save his people. God so loved the world in this manner that he gave his only son so that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. The love of a father, the sending of a son so that he could reap a harvest You see, to kill the son is not to end the situation, as the leaders were preparing to do, to destroy. They were plotting and scheming to destroy Jesus. But as we know, in doing so, they're going to have to deal with God the Father, because the Father is just. But the Father is also full of love and mercy. So the owner will come and destroy the tenants, and also by sending of the son, there would be suffering and there would be death, but it would make a way to give a vineyard to others, to redeem a people, to redeem a new people, and as we saw last week, a na- all nations, Jews and Gentiles, where his house could be a house of prayer of all nations. They could have access to the fruit of his kingdom and life in his kingdom. And this is where Jesus drops sort of his conclusion, his teaching. His teaching. He, he goes to a psalm, and he, and he begins with this, have you not read? I mean, he has already exposed their inability to interpret truth, but Jesus just 
another dagger. Have you not read in Psalm 118, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Psalm 18 is about this beloved son who would be rejected. Jesus predicted that he would be the one that would be rejected. It's the same verb here, killed and rise after three days, Mark 8, 31. The builders, these leaders, would reject Jesus, the cornerstone. Now, we're not exactly sure what at this time, in the way they built things, what cornerstone means. But we did, it's two possibilities, as I understand. One would be it would be a stone laid. It's the first foundational stone by which it orientates all of the, the other foundational stones in that corner. So the walls would be able to be built. The foundation would be built, be built. So the whole building would be constructed based on the importance of that one stone. Or it relates to what's called a finishing stone or the capstone, which completes the wall. And so it is either way, it is the completion or the essential element of how things are finished. And yet these builders thought it was disposable, that it could be tossed aside. See, the tenants thought that they could just kill and toss away the sun. But the rejection of the stone, the rejection of the stone was the Lord's plan so that that stone became the centerpiece and the foundation of his house so it could be completed. The rejection was God's plan, and the glory of his son is in his plan, and this is the Lord's doing. They thought in their devising and their little wicked scheming, they were squashing something, but it was actually God's doing and his advancing of his divine rescue plan through his Messiah. In Genesis, we see a story, the story of Joseph and his brothers. And if you remember, his, his brothers were plotting because they, they didn't like Joseph to kill him. And we actually see these exact same words in Genesis as we see here in Mark, used by Joseph's brothers. They say, come, let us kill him. Well, the story unfolds. And what looked like a most tragic thing, the killing of Joseph, the attempt to kill Joseph, and all his suffering along the way, in turn, God used Joseph to be a savior, to in turn save many from famine and from death. And this is what Joseph would say later to his brothers in chapter 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. God used what seemed to be only evil and tragedy and used it for the rescue of God's people. This is such a helpful reminder for our hearts. How is this, how is this very tragic thing, Christ's rejection, his suffering on the cross, God uses that for good. It actually becomes something that is marvelous because by Jesus' cross and his suffering and his death and his, re his rejection, his bearing of God's wrath and his resurrection, this most horrific thing turned into what Ephesians tells us is to the praise 
of his glorious grace. A tragedy turns to the praise of his glorious grace by which he loves and saves his people. And that is why the rejection of the cornerstone, God uses it for it to become marvelous in God's people's eyes. A marvelous thing. And this marvelous thing is where God opens this door through this vineyard being given, the authority and responsibility and transition of this flows to his apostles, which established the Christian church. And God now fills his people with the Spirit, and they become spiritual temples in which the Spirit of God dwells within his people, bearing fruit, going through the world, God's people, now the dwelling place of his presence built upon Jesus, the cornerstone. And this is why we see in Acts chapter 4, the apostles are preaching and healing. And it says in chapter 4 that rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem. Sound familiar? And we see this, Peter standing up in the power of the Holy Spirit after healing a man. It says, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus was crucified and raised from the dead. The rejection were by those leaders that he is speaking to. And through that rejection, Jesus becomes the cornerstone. And because he's this cornerstone, there is salvation, access to his kingdom, fruit in his kingdom that all men are welcome to experience and be saved by. That is marvelous good news. Something horribly evil and tragic that God turns to be magnificently good. A tragedy that turns marvelous. And I was thinking about that sort of what appears a dichotomy. The only God can do. I was thinking of you saints and reminded that many of you, maybe even right now, are finding yourself in tragedy and pain. And it's in those moments, it is very difficult to see outside of that and think, Lord, how is good coming through this thing? How is good going to be coming through this. And we don't see it in the moment. We also often don't see that in the moment, but, but we can trust because this is God's ways of redemption. Because God is for us and not against us. It's because he's able to take all things that seem broken and make them new. And that God is doing something through them. We know he is doing something marvelous in them. We can hope in him. We can cling to him. We can look at the one who redeems all things and one day will redeem all things. And we'll look at it and say, God, that is marvelous what you've done. This is the Lord's doing. We need to hear that today. I know these first readers in Mark had to hear that. First hearers of Mark under Nero's persecution, his fist, his sword, trying to squash God's church, the progress of Jesus' mission. There's lots of opportunity for us to be discouraged 
in our cultural context of things that seem to be pressing in. But we know that though all of that comes in, we have hope. We have hope. There's nothing going to thwart God's plan. God, in the end, is going to get glory, and it's going to be to the praise of his glorious grace. The path of his cross to his resurrection, his eternal throne and glory, secures all our end, and it's marvelous. And though we see dimly now, saints, we know that God is doing something marvelous. It is hard and sometimes difficult to find joy, but we can marvel at God's grace because we know he's at work in us to the end. Hostility from the world around us, we can marvel at God's grace because he, the good father, sent his son, his beloved son, his only son, towards us, for us, so that we could be his, secure in his love. That's marvelous, saints. That's marvelous. And if you're here this morning and you have, your eyes have been opened to this parable and you see the beauty of that, you're in his kingdom, that should make us marvel. That should humble us and make us marvel. And one day we will be in his presence. And all those things will be understood. And what we get to do through eternity is continue to stare into that marvelous thing Deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And it will become more marvelous, more marvelous, more marvelous, more marvelous. So be encouraged, saying That struggle, that tragedy, that thing right now, if you're his, is a marvelous thing that God's doing. Knowing that we are his disciples, the path of his cross is our path, and he redeems all things for us, his beloved people, because he sent his beloved son. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, what seemed to be for those disciples that were among among you in this moment in Jerusalem leading up to this Passover and what would feel like your life being undone because of the rejection of your Savior. What looked like the fulfillment of your plan and all that was good become, became undone and nothing was marvelous in that moment. And yet you rose from the dead, Jesus, proving that you are victorious, proving that you have all authority, proving that you are the Son of God, Proving that you are the beloved son that was sent to redeem his people. And because you redeem your people and because you're faithful to your covenant, you're the one that keeps your people. And you are the one that will keep your people to the end. And so thank you for letting us be your people. And we can, we can confess this is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Let it become freshly marvelous to us this morning, Jesus. And Lord, those of us in hard moments, in hard situations, Lord, would you, would you allow us, those people, not to be overcome by those situations in despair or hopelessness, but there would be just a strengthening of faith to know, God, that you, you are at work. You will bring beauty from ashes, Lord. 
And one day, you return and we are before you in your throne, we, we will see that you have done all things well, that you have made all things marvelous because you are, you are the Christ. So strengthen our hearts today, Lord. I pray for any those in here this morning that are struggling to believe, um, maybe out of fear, fear of rejection, of men that fear of letting go of something that they have not confessed to you as Christ. Lord, I pray that you, Jesus, would break into their hearts and they would, they would turn in faith to you this morning. They would forsake all and they would look to you as Savior and King. Amen.